Okay, announcements. <laughs> Baby shower next Sunday following worship. There'll be a work day on March 16th at 8 a.m. There'll be a potluck on the 17th in here after church. And glory, next Saturday night, set your clocks ahead because daylight saving start, time starts next weekend. Isn't that exciting? Okay, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness, so I will uh, give you a moment to do that if necessary in your life, and then I'll open us up, and we'll get started on the book of Isaiah. Father, we do thank you so much for the work that Jesus Christ did, for his, who he is and what he did on the cross on our behalf, and I'm grateful to see all of us here who have believed in him and placed our faith in him and have been granted eternal life because we've done that, but it's also heartbreaking to know how many people have not done that, how many people are in opposition to it and rebellion against it, and I pray that you would help us be aware of that and help us to to spread the gospel message to people who desperately need to hear it before it's too late. And Father, I pray for our nation and our world. There are a lot of uh, crazy things going on in the world today, and yet we know that Satan is the prince and power of the air, the god of this world at this time, and we should expect things to be crazy because he's running things, at least to the extent that you allow him to do so at this time. So help us be aware of his schemes and how he attacks us through attacking the word of God and through convincing people that they can be their own God. And I pray that we can be aware of that in our own lives and then further help other people become aware of those truths as well. Father, I pray for your blessing on everyone that's here today in this assembly, in this house. I pray that you bless them and keep them in the coming week and help us to meet life's challenges by living out a biblical worldview moment by moment in our lives and in the lives of our family and in our workplace and wherever we might be. We thank you for your word and we thank you that we're able to stay, be in this house this morning and study it. And I pray that what we do here honors you and glorifies your name in everything that happens in this place. We love you and we thank you for your presence with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're in Isaiah chapter 2. Now at this point, Isaiah is turning his attention back to Israel. But what we need to remember when we're reading Isaiah, especially I'm really becoming aware of this here already in the first two chapters, is that uh, when Israel reaps the ultimate divine discipline of the tribulation, the Gentiles are going to experience God's wrath at the same time. And sometimes when we're here in Isaiah, these verses refer to both Jews and Gentiles in that tribulation sense, even though Isaiah's specific recipient in terms of the book is Judah and Jerusalem. And also, these things also t refer to Israel in total, because the Assyrian uh, invasion hasn't happened yet either. So uh, there are numerous things going on here in this book at times. So we have to be aware of that. Okay, verse 5. Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now, this is a command from God through the prophet to the house of Jacob, that is, to Israel. Come and walk are the same word. 
The word is uh, malak, and it means to go or travel, to make a linear movement from one place to another. The word come here is an imperative. It's a, a command, and walk is also a command, but it's in the form of what they call a cohortative verbal conjugation, and I'm just telling you that simply to say that the, in the end, both are commands uh, for the Israelites to walk in the light of the war, Lord. And in fact, a little later in this, we're going to see that there's a third kind of command. You have the imperative, the cohortative, and something called the jussive. So I'll, I'll mention that later too, and I don't like to get into that because it doesn't mean anything to you, but I just, uh, we all pretty much are aware of what an imperative is, but in Hebrew there are two other uh, conjugations that also are, imply an imperative type result, a command. But these are commands then for the Israelites to walk in the light of the Lord. Now walk's a metaphor for how to maintain fellowship with God and to conduct oneself as a member of the believing community. Commands were also issued in the first chapter for the Israelites to return to God and to live the way they were commanded to live for centuries before we arrived at this point in Israel's history. But they didn't listen before. They're not going to listen to Isaiah, and they would not listen in the future. And that fact, fully comprehended only in light of time and progressive revelation, reveals that it will take the tribulation to finally bring Israel into the relationship with God that they were originally created to have. But nevertheless, God is patient and merciful, and he continually called Israel to return to fellowship within the covenant relationship he created them to have with him. And just as continually, they refuse to comply. And apart from the remnant, that's where things stand to this very day. Now, the prophet did not separate himself from the house of Jacob. He said, let us walk. He did not say, you walk. And that kind of brings to mind the prophet Daniel, who did the same thing in Daniel 9, 1 to 6, when he prayed, we have sinned and we have not listened. The prophets were not, they were godly men, and they were not separating themselves from the sin of the people and looking down their nose at them saying, you people have to change. No, he said, we have to change. Uh, Buxbagen said this. He said, these men of God included themselves. That's not the right quote there. Yeah, I'm not sure what I did here. Let's see if I can find it. These men of God included themselves among the people who had sinned against God as members of the corporate body of Israel. Buxbagen thought this was one sign of a true Israelite prophet. Here, here's his quote right here. It is this identification with the house of Jacob which authenticates the true prophet. Those who only harp and con upon the harp and carp upon the sins of Jacob without being heartbroken and without sharing in the tragedy of their own people are not bona fide servants of God, but enemies of Israel. In other words, what he's saying here is, is that these prophets identified themselves with the people. They were true prophets. They had a true heart for God. They had a true heart for their people, and they were trying to call them back to God. Now, this verse cannot be divorced from what came before it. In the last days, that is, in this use of the term during the kingdom, the Gentiles who did not have the light of God would stream to the house of, of the God of Jacob. And that was in verse 3, which we talked about last week. 
and they were going to learn his ways and walk in his path. But in Isaiah's day, the Israelites, the house of Jacob, already had the light of God and the knowledge of his ways available to them, and therefore they should have been walking in his path already, but they were not. So by suggesting the Gentiles would one day go to Zion to learn from God and to follow him was unthinkable to the Jewish people. That really came out when we read the Gospels and Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees and so forth. And this is an early glimpse, I think, of God's intention to use Gentile salvation as a motivating factor to identify the Jewish remnant and bring them to faith. I think Paul specifically identified that situation centuries later as it pertained to the dispensation of grace when he said in Romans 10:19, but I say surely did not know, surely Israel did not know did they? First Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation, by a nation without understanding will I anger you. So I think what we have in here in Isaiah is this early indication that that the Jews are going to be made jealous by the fact that that, uh, Gentiles will ultimately come to faith. Now, light here is a a frequently used concept referring to God, and it's used as a contrast to darkness, which as a metaphorical concept is anti-God. Light represents that which is good, and God's word is a revelation of his light, and darkness represents that which is evil. The light illuminates the darkness, And being in the light is related to relationship with God, fellowship with God, knowing the word of God, and exercising godly wisdom. Walking in darkness, in contrast to that, relates to operating in the realm of Satan and his world system under the power of his evil world view. And we have examples, if there are lots of examples of this in the Bible, I've just got a few here in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And Lamentations 3.2, he has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. You see, you have this concept of light, good, dark, evil. And then in the New Testament, John 1.5 and 9, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. And there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Ephesians 5.8, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And this is such a powerful metaphor associated with God that Satan is said to disguise himself as an agent of light as a means of concealing his identity as part of his efforts to deceive in 2 Corinthians 11.14 says, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So that's why Isaiah is calling the Israelites to come walk in the light of God. It's the good place to be. Walking in the darkness is not the good place to be. Now, the word light in Hebrew is or, and it means light, sun, sunshine, and daylight. And in Greek, the word is phos, meaning light, illumination, Daylight, starlight, and firelight, so various kinds of light. Technically, it's a word that represents the absence of darkness, and it is the opposite of darkness. Now, we, as human beings, intuitively know what light is because we need it in order to see anything. Therefore, in terms of its physical properties, light is instantly recognizable to us, but as a spiritual concept, 
It's not understood well, and much of the world, including the professing church, walks in darkness. The Bible frequently uses the concept of light, as Isaiah did here, in a spiritual sense, as a metaphor to relate to God and to what is good as opposed to darkness and what is evil. In Nelson's Bible Dictionary, they said exactly that. They said, throughout the Bible, light represents truth, goodness, and God's redemptive work. Darkness, on the other hand, symbolizes error, evil, and the works of Satan. So the implication Isaiah is making here is that the Israelites have been walking in darkness and instead they need to be walking in the light of the Lord. And there are at least two aspects to this command. One is revelatory, that is, they need to know and observe the law. And second, if they did that, it would restore the familial relationship that had been broken between Israel and Yahweh. Fellowship flows from revelation properly understood, obeyed, and lived out. In other words, by developing, maintaining, and living with a biblical worldview. And that was true then, and that's still true today. Now, the problem was the Israelites preferred walking in the darkness. But that is not, however, a problem unique to them. Mankind has always preferred walking in the darkness over the light, and they still do. John 3.19, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Now the next verse, the prophet is going to launch into a condemnation of the way the Israelites have been conducting themselves in verse 6. For you have abandoned your people, talking about God, abandoned your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with influences from the east and they are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they strike bargains with the children of foreigners. <clears throat> this word abandon, natash, is a strong word meaning to forsake, reject, or abandon. In agricultural terms, it means to leave fallow or uncultivated, which seems to be a good metaphor for the Lord's disciplinary program for Israel at that point in their history, which is leading up to the Assyrian conquest of Israel and the Babylonian conquest of Judah. God always leaves open the possibility that the nation would seek to restore fellowship with him. But at this point, he's leaving them to go their own way. If that is what they desire, that is what they will be allowed to do. But they will suffer the consequences for it, just as he promised them long before in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Now, the text literally reads, filled from the east, and our, our New American Standard translators, translators added the word with influences to the text, and other translations read it different ways, eastern ways, customs from the east, diviners from the east, things from the east, divination from the east. So they're kind of trying to fill in the blanks here. And the Lexham English Bible is the only translation that left it in its original, translated according to the original text, with no explanatory uh, additions. So there's a lot of interpretive freedom being exercised by translators for this verse. But, and the context strongly suggests that pagan influence from the east is running rampant in the nation at that time. The word fill is male, and it means to be full, to fill up, 
to fill, to fill up, or to be complete. It refers to being filled to capacity. So Israel was so full of idolatry that it just couldn't hold anymore. It was full up. And in verses 6 to 8 here, we're going to see that this concept of being filled is used four times, indicating that the nation's rebellion has reached a peak and judgment is about to fall. Yet the people still did not heed the warnings. As in all pagan religions, the occult played a major role in the religion of the Philistines. And whether or not the Israelites adopted the practices of the Philistines, or this is simply a comparison of the practices they got from the East with this Philistine paganism, or both, is not clear. I think it's probably both. I think they were adopting practices of the Philistines, and they were being influenced from these other nations from the East who were coming into Israel at that time. Uh, Given the proclivities of the Israelites to adopt paganism, they were probably filled with various practices from all of the idolatrous systems around them. A soothsayer, Anan, has the basic meaning of to make something appear. So the thing that first comes to mind is something like a medium who calls up the dead, such as the witch of Endor did for King Saul in 1 Samuel 28. And this word is various, variously translated as a soothsayer and soothsaying, witchcraft, fortune-telling, sorceress, and diviner. The problem identified here was not that the Philistines were engaging in occult activity, because that's what we expect pagans to do. They, they engage in that. The problem was the Israelites, who should have known better, had embraced the same occult practices. And what they did when they did that, they abandoned Yahweh in order to embrace Satan's occult system of worship. And just as they had abandoned Yahweh to go after false gods, Yahweh was abandoning them to reap what they had sown. Engaging in this activity was specifically prohibited in the Mosaic Law. Leviticus 19.26, You shall not eat anything with the blood, nor practice divination or soothsaying. And in Deuteronomy 18.10, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer. So they were expressly forbidden to be doing these things, and they knew it. Now the Israelites had intertwined themselves with foreigners, in other words pagans, which exposed them to and created an interest in their pagan gods. And ultimately, the Israelites abandoned Yahweh and embraced those false gods. Now, this word strike here is safak, and it refers to clapping the hands together, slapping one's thigh, or to boxing someone's ears. But in this case, it's figurative language, including making business deals with strangers. I don't know if it's talking about some sort of a handshake or something like that, but that's, that's, it's... It's not about hitting somebody upside the head or anything like that, but it's about making deals in this context with foreigners. And the word foreigner, navri, means a foreigner, a stranger, or an alien. It it refers to a person who does not belong to the nation of Israel by ancestry. Now, trade and commerce were not prohibited activities between the Israelites and foreigners. The problem was the Israelites adopted the paganism of the foreigners with whom they were interacting, which was a rejection of their relationship with Yahweh. Now, what was prohibited, though, expressly was 
forming military alliances and those kind of political and military alliances with other nations. That they were not to do. But there were caravans coming through. We see Solomon made a business deal with the king of Tyre to, for the, temp, the goods for the temple and those kinds of things. But the text is clear that foreign pagan religions and worldviews were co-opting the worldview the Israelites were created to observe in order to maintain fellowship with Yahweh. Centuries before, Moses counseled them to do that which would bless them and refrain from disobeying God's commands, which would result in the imposition of divine discipline. They knew these things, and they were and still are without excuse. Next, the prophet condemned the focus on wealth and power that was consuming the nation at the time. And again, we're presented with this concept of fullness, which this time concerned wealth and military power. In verse 7, their land has also been filled with silver and gold, and there's no end to their treasures. Their land has also been filled with horses, and there was no end to their chariots. So the problem with wealth and military strength is that it can make people and nations think they're self-sufficient and have no need for God. But this was obviously a particular danger for Israel given their covenantal relationship with Yahweh. This is to be expected for nations operating within the parameters of the world system, which is every nation but Israel. But Israel was not reckoned among the nations. The prophet's words indicate that Israel had fallen into that trap, though. And not only have they turned away from Yahweh in terms of worship, they've rejected him as the source of their national sustenance. Now, through Moses, Yahweh commanded the kings, of the, Is commanded the, kings the Israelites would inevitably want over them not to multiply horses, wives, and wealth. And two of those three are things in this verse specifically condemned for doing, condemning them for doing them. When the kings were prohibited from doing these things, the nation by extension was prohibited from doing those things. And once they violated this command, national wealth and military power became more important than God and fostered a sense of independence from him. The interactions and alliances these things fostered, maybe even required, between Israel and the nations also tempted them to adopt the pagan gods of those nations, which they obviously did. So wealth tends to have a deleterious effect on society. People become more concerned with amusing themselves when they don't have to work so hard to keep their families from going hungry. Rome had that problem, and it led to the empire's destruction, and the case could probably be made that the United States is heading down the same path. I read a little sentence this week in something I was reading that mentioned that nations are never destroyed from without until they've already rotted from within. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. But here was the command back in Deuteronomy 17, 16 and 17 for, against the, the prohibition for the kings to multiply things. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way, he shall not, shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. It is not silver or gold in themselves which are condemned, but the filling of the land with these things, 
An overabundance, even of good things, can turn the heart away from God. When God's people are filled with the fullness which the world offers, they are empty toward God. What should be emptiness for them is the fullness for the nations. And having given up the richness of the promises of God, the nation falsely appraised the treasures of the world and then the world's ideals and finally its altars. So in terms of application then, I mentioned this a moment ago, but I'll mention it again. The wealth of America in the West has turned the focus of believers inward rather than upward in the same way it affected Israel. The focus is now more on self rather than on Jesus. And this is really apparent among those who adhere to the prosperity gospel. But many other believers have fallen into the trap of thinking that becoming a believer should automatically lead to a materially blessed life free of troubles, and that's simply not true. Wealth, then and now, need not be a problem, but it certainly can be, and obviously at this time it was for Israel. For the choice nation, their self-reliance was a repudiation on the promises Yahweh made to care for them based on their obedience. The Israelites were promised material blessings for obedience, and their disobedience incurred God's promised disciplinary program. In contrast, believers in this age are promised every spiritual blessing in heavenly places based only on their position in Christ in Ephesians 1.3, which I believe is a far greater promise than the promise of material blessings. Spiritual blessings are now, and they are eternal. Whatever we think our material blessings now are going to be immaterial when we enter into our eternal state. Now, in the term no end here, which is ayin katse, the word no refers to negation, meaning not or there is no. And end means end or without end, but it can also mean there is no end, which then refers to the greatest amount of something that is allowed. So the meaning here is that the land was was so full of idolatry, wealth, and military might that it at least theoretically could hold no more, completely, totally, to the ceiling, full of these things. They had filled the land with that which Yahweh had prohibited, and he was going to impose the divine discipline he promised the nation for doing it. Now, the pagan influences the prophet revealed in verse 6, which introduced even more paganism into the land than was already present there among the Canaanites, resulted in, eventually, the overt adoption of idolatry. Verse 8, their land has also been filled with idols, and they worship the work of their hands, that which their fingers have made. And this is the same Hebrew word meaning full, male, which was used to indicate the land had been filled to capacity with idolatry. It's the same word that had been used in the previous three verses. And this is the fourth use of the word in those verses. The land had become full of paganism, foreign influence, wealth, military power, and idols. Metaphorically, the land was filled to capacity with rebellion, idolatry, and self-sufficiency, which was a rejection of the care and protection of Yahweh. This was a picture of the nearly total cessation of fellowship between Yahweh and the Israelites. He was giving them over to their own spiritually adulterous desires and allowing them to go their own way until he imposed divine discipline on them. But 
We've also already noted that God was also calling them back to fellowship, which, if heeded, would have eliminated the need for his disciplinary judgment. Now, the Hebrew word for idol is kind of interesting. It's elil. In, in the text, it's plural, so it's elilim. And it means worthless or nothing. It's a word that represents pagan gods as no more than worthless nothingness. It's a derogatory reference to the pagan gods as non-entities. We could say that an idol represents death or non-viability as opposed to the concept of the living God of the Bible who created and sustains life. Evidence of the dead, non-viable state of idols was confirmed by the prophet when he stated that the Israelites' idols were nothing more than the work of their own human hands. The problem is they become so spiritually dull that they cannot realize the work of their hands is nothing. Now, later in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter 44, we'll get there eventually, I promise. Isaiah later addressed the issue of man-made idols and the spiritual dullness that characterizes their maker. In Isaiah 44, 18 to 20, and we're talking about somebody who made an idol here. And the prophet writes, they do not know, nor do they understand, for he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. No one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire and also have baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and eat it. Then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver himself nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? That is a wonderful description of the deception that people can put themselves under when they reject God and ultimately enthrone themselves as their own deity. The things that man considers to be important are unimportant in God's eyes, and they may be a curse rather than a blessing, particularly when they become an idol. And this is especially true concerning Israel due to their covenant relationship with God. We expect pagans to engage in idolatry. That's what they do. But God's choice people were supposed to be serving him knew better, and they engaged in idolatry anyway. And I think Oswald accurately described the folly of idolatry. He said, But unless that wealth and power were understood to be God's gift alone and not the work of human hands through idols, it would finally prove to be a curse. For idolatry is ultimately the creation of God in man's image for the purpose of achieving human ends. It is thus the utmost exaltation of mankind. But idolatry is finally foolish. How foolish to call divine what human hands have made. If deity is in any way the image or product of humanity, then the world is without sense or purpose. And I would suggest that that is largely where we're at today in the world, without sense or purpose. So Israel was rebellious right from the start of their relationship with Yahweh, even during the Exodus when they were continually exposed to the mighty power of God and his miraculous works on their behalf. But they reached the pinnacle of covenant unfaithfulness by Isaiah's time and were about to reap what they had sown. The nation was living in almost total defiance of the first two commandments. Exodus 23 to 5, 
You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. So this is where we're at. They've completely turned their back on God by this time. Now, verse 9 refers to the state in which the Israels will find themselves throughout history, culminating at the end in the tribulation. Verse 9, So the common man has been humbled, and the man of importance has been abased, but do not forgive them. The men described here will be brought to their knees by sin, rebellion, and idolatry. They would be brought to a place of fear and low station, and this was before the most serious consequences of rebellion were imposed, that, that being the Assyrian and Babylonian conquests, followed by the Roman destruction of Jerusalem and Israel, the diaspora and all of the persecution during this time, and ultimately the tribulation. The consequences of their rebellion were sure and soon to fall. Now you can see here, I don't know if you can tell, they're, they're uh, in italics, the New American Standard inserted two words in this verse, and those were common and, and importance, in an attempt to differentiate between the two Hebrew words translated man. And I, I'm going to show you that this is unnecessary because the words are frequently used as synonyms and appear together, and other translations correctly recognize the situation. Of all that I usually routinely check, I thought the King James Version had the best, most literal translation of this. And they wrote, uh, people bow down and each man humbles himself. The Lexham Bible said, so humanity is humbled and everyone is humbled. And the Revised Standard Version had it, so man is humbled and men are brought low. And these are more correct. The The bow down and the humbles himself are more accurate to the text. The word man here in the first use is Adam, means a male, a person, or a human being, and collectively at first to mankind. And the other use of man here is Ish, and that means a man or an individual, specifically a male. And the word for woman is Isha. You can see where that comes from, but uh, Ish is the word for a man. In some instances in the Old Testament, there appears to be little difference between Adam and Ish, when the two are used side by side. So that's why I'm saying I think the differentiation that the New American Standard tried to make between common man, Adam, and the men of importance, Ish, is not necessarily according to the text. I don't think they needed to do that. Uh, many theologians want to differentiate, differentiate between the two by referring this first to a common man and the second to a man of high social status and that's why they added those clarifying words. But I don't think that was necessary. And the other translator, translations that don't add any clarifying words for man are better. These two clauses just seem to parallel, parallel one another. The word the New American Standard uses to translate humbled is shahak. It means to shahak, means to stoop, to bow down, to crouch, or to sink low. It carries a nuance of submission and fear. And this could be true at various times during God's disciplinary program throughout the history of Israel. But this situation will be fully manifest during the tribulation when the Israelites are brought to the end of themselves and all they can do 
is bow down before God in submission and fear and cry out the messy cry, messianic cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That will happen, but they're not yet there yet. The word they translated abased in the New American Standard is shafael. It means to make humble, to humiliate, to bring down. And this word also refers to bringing the Israelites down to the point to where they are humiliated and finally recognize their need for God. Now at this point in this verse, it would appear that Isaiah's emotions probably overcame him to some extent when he, when he wrote, do not forgive them. Now the prophet, Buxbagen wrote this, the prophet reaches the climax of outrage when he cries out in an apparent fit of anger and frustration, forgive them not. Somehow the human quality of the prophet comes through to us very clearly in spite of the 26 centuries which separate us from his times. This momentary lapse of Isaiah's usual compassion for his people can only be explained by the depths of the prophet's anguish as he looked on helplessly at the growing spread of injustice, idolatry, and the corroding influence of wealth side by side with the increasing arrogance and smug self-assurance of the leaders of Judah. Now, this is where this form here, when, when he says, forgive them not, is that third imperative type formulation. It's called adjessive, which is another form of that imperative. So Isaiah was expressing to God his belief that the Israelites should not be forgiven and must face his judgment. Constable, however, believes this was a Hebrew idiom meaning, for sure you will not forgive them. So in other words, he's saying it's not quite as strong as Isaiah telling God what to do. Um, but the problem with this view, I think, is that Yahweh stood ready to forgive them and restore them if they would only return to him, which we talked about in the first chapter in verses 18 to 20. If they failed to return, then the divine discipline would surely be imposed. And this word translated forgive is nasad. It means to lift up, to bear, to carry, or to take away, and to forgive. And the latter is how every translation I look at understands it, including the Tanakh. But Stuart thinks it refers to lifting up or exalting. And he said, this is a simple concluding statement that you, God, should not lift up or exalt them. In light of what was said about the sinfulness of these people, it's logical to reach the conclusion that the sinful person should not be exalted. This removes the theological idea that Isaiah did not want God to forgive these people. It also fits a contextual emphasis that God has humbled the proud and will not lift them up again. So Stuart doesn't believe that Isaiah would be trying to tell God what to do, so he's trying to make an alternative explanation for what's going on here. And maybe he's right, but because Isaiah wrote this in the form of a command and because there was the opportunity for them to return and avoid punishment, it seems likely that forgiven is the proper translation. Isaiah was angry with them and wanted them punished as Buxbagen believed. So before they reach the end, the Israelites will try to hide themselves from God in a vain attempt to hide from his judgment in Isaiah 2.10. Enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. Now this verse should clearly remind us of the tribulation when people will be foolishly and unsuccessfully hiding from the wrath of God during, the, during that time. 
Revelation 6, 15 to 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us in the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? You can see how these what Isaiah is talking about way back then is what he's talking about or what will be happening far off into the future. Now, obviously, there's no place that man can hide from God. He's omnipresent. In Psalm 139, the psalmist recognized that fact, and that was true when David wrote the psalm. It's still true today. It will always be true. Psalm 139, 7 to 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and night are alike to you. Now, omnipresence means that God is everywhere present with his whole being at all times. Omnipresence does not mean that God is being diffused throughout the universe as if part of him is here and part of him is there. His whole being is in every place. And the presence of the Lord within every believer serves as a good illustration of this. No person can escape the presence of God. This warns unbelievers and comforts believers who, because God is omnipresent, can practice the experience of his presence in every circumstance of life. And that's why when believers are being persecuted and find themselves in terrible straits, They know that God is still there with them and they can persevere through some of those things that are happening to them where other people may not be able to do that, to persevere, to be strong. And if you know, if you've read much Christian history, there are some incredible stories of Christians who have suffered persecution who have come through the other end terrible times of trouble, years in prison, torture, things like that. It's going on in China right now. It's going on in Islamic countries right now. It's not gone away, probably worse now than it's ever been. But during that time, tribulation time, many people, both Jews and Gentiles, while futilely trying to hide from God, will still reject the one remedy they have, which is to repent, meaning to change their minds and believe. And conversely, Some few will repent and believe, but most will not. And while I think the tribulation period is going to be a great time when many people are going to come to faith, in light of the total population of the world, it will still be a small number. Jesus once referred to his disciples as the little flock. And I think that in terms of world population, I think we're still the little flock. I think we'll probably always be the little flock. But nevertheless, it's our job to try to grow the little flock into a bigger flock. Revelation 9, 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues 
did not repent of the works of their hands, so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk, and they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. So even in this time of great tribulation, when the people remember, what are these people going to be saying? Hide us from the wrath of God. They know why, they're, why this is happening, and they're still going to refuse to believe. But some will. Verse 11, The proud look of man will be abased, and the loftiness of man will be humbled, and the Lord will be exalted in that day. Now the word proud is gav huth. It means arrogant, haughty, conceited, or lofty. This word conveys the thought that the attitude of arrogant pride is a negative moral attribute. It's an overbearing pride evidenced by a superior manner towards others, in this case towards God. This word is conveying a very negative attitude concerning the Israelites' relationship with God, and by extension, mankind in total has this attitude toward God. Now, most translations use the word haughty here, but proud and lofty are also used. Uh, No translators use the word arrogant, but I think arrogant would have been the word that most conveys the meaning in this verse to the average American English-speaking person because the words lofty and haughty uh, don't really resonate with us as well. We don't, how often do you use those words when you're talking about something, lofty and haughty? We don't use words like that so much. But we do use arrogant. And I think that exactly, and we know what that means. And what this is saying is, is that these people are so arrogant, they think they're their own God, they think they're at least equal with God, and they have no regard for what God wants them to do. So what we have here then are attitudes of people who are so full of themselves that they think they are as high and lifted up as God is high and lifted up. That's what this verse is trying to tell us here. The word loftiness, which is room, means haughtiness, pride, overbearing pride, and height or elevation. It refers to an improper state or attitude of pride and self-willed arrogance and so have an unwarranted assignment of high status of self. This concept is that man has elevated himself to the kind of high status that we envision God enjoying, which, of course, rightly belongs to God and not to any man. A man is only fooling himself when he thinks he can attain that high status that only God can attain. If God alone will be exalted, it's shagav, or sagav, which means to be high, to be exalted, to be inaccessible and unattainable. No matter how much man wants to be his own God, he can never attain the high and exalted position that belongs only to the Creator God. That status is completely unattainable and inaccessible to mankind. But as we've seen over and over again, that doesn't keep man from thinking he can do it. And it's a foolish errand that man sets himself on when he thinks 
that he can be God, whether his own God or God of other people or God of this world. Whatever man thinks he can do that only God can do, he's fooling himself. Now, in the Old Testament, I want to, I want to talk about for just a moment the term in that day. It's a beyom ha-hu, and it should not be used as a technical term that identifies the day of Jacob's distress or the tribulation because at times it's used as a more general reference term that refers to a future day. However, it is very close to being a technical term identified the tribulation, especially when it's used in the prophets. It frequently refers to that time in human history and the following text in Isaiah does deal with the tribulation. So I think that's what we're talking about here is we're talking about in that day referring to the tribulation. And occasionally the phrase in that day is applied to the messianic kingdom. Isaiah and Zechariah use the term more frequently than the other prophets use it. So just when the term is used just as a general term, we can see that in Leviticus 7.35 that uses in that day to refer to the day that Aaron and his sons were consecrated to be the priests of Israel. And it's in Numbers 32.10, in that day refers to the day the Lord was angry at the pessimistic report the spies brought to the Israelites after they returned from their excursion into Canaan. So that's why I say that in that day is not not completely a technical term referring to the tribulation because the same wording is used here in these verses just to refer to a day in general that had something specific happened on that day. But in the prophets, the term is used more frequently to refer to the tribulation as it does here in Isaiah 2.11. And I'm going to read you Zechariah 12, 3 to 4 and 9, and it's used in that day specifically is used three times to refer to the tribulation. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. But I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the people with blindness. And in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So this is clearly a tribulation use of in that day. And then finally, the term is also used to refer to the kingdom, Joel 3.18. And in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. So when you see in that day, particularly in the Old Testament, it's generally going to be referring to the tribulation or the messianic kingdom. But look at context, because it might be referring to, well, in, the day, in that day when Aaron and his sons were consecrated, Stuff like that. So I'm saying it's, it's not quite a technical term for the tribulation in the Messianic kingdom, but it comes pretty close. So just watch content when you're doing that. Okay, that's all I have for today. So let's close with a word of prayer, and we'll get ready to go into the other hour of teaching and have communion today. Father, we thank you for this day you've given us here today, a 
a day when we can stand in this house and teach the word of God in peace and freedom. And we pray it would ever be that way in this nation. But we see storm clouds gathering in that direction. And when things happen, Lord, just lead us through them. We ask and we ask that you help us keep our eyes focused on you and on a biblical worldview, no matter what is going on around us. In the meantime, we do pray for our nation and for our president and for our leadership that they would do what is right in your sight and do what is right for the people of this nation, which coincidentally happens to be what is right in your sight. So help our, our leaders recognize that and do that and, and uh, stand up to Satan's world system and not let it overwhelm them or cower, cow them into uh, joining it. Lord, we thank you for everything you've done for us, especially in and through who and Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross. That's an amazing thing that you have done for us that we can have eternal life based simply on faith in him. And that is apart from anything that we could do for there's nothing in us to commend us to you, but there is everything in him that can commend us to you when we place our faith in him and you graciously grant us his righteousness so that we can come into your presence as members of the family of God. That's just an incredible truth and it's so it's very humbling and we're so grateful that you would do that for us given our rebellious natures so we thank you for that and we thank you for your presence with us here this morning and once again i pray for your blessing on everyone that's going to be in this house this morning and pray that you lead us and guide us in the next week and help us to ever be uh, aware of opportunities to preach the gospel to people who need to hear it and lord i pray that As we take communion today, we do remember what Jesus did for us on that cross. What a horrible, excruciating death he died. A death he didn't deserve to die in our place. A death we did deserve to die. And now we don't have to die it because he did it. That's just incredible. And we thank you so much for that. Greater love hath no man than this. And he laid down his life for his friends. And you've done that for us. So we thank you once again for your word and for your presence with us here today. In Jesus' name, amen.